turn this morning for the last time in this series in Ecclesiastes to the final words of the book, chapter 12. This is at page 559 in your pew Bibles, if that's helpful. Uh, to pick up at verse 8, we'll read through the end of the chapter, indeed through the end of this book. Our time in Ecclesiastes has been rich and full of wisdom. Uh, maybe because I've uh, achieved or attained a certain point of age in my life that it's been particularly impactful on me, but wherever you are in the years of life, however many or few they may be, Koheleth has left his impression, hasn't he, upon us, all of us who've had open ears to hear his message. May the word that we've received and digested continue to have its way with us now for the rest of our days, molding and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ as God's word is wont to do. He's the potter and we the clay. So now may we turn to the Lord once more for help, uh, for the grace to hear his voice as is our intention. Father, we thank you that you righteous and holy God that you are, holy, 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 have deigned to uh, speak into the ears of uh, your people, the babbling language that we understand, but beautiful because you've created language as well. And we thank you for the skillful way that your servant has used that language now by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to pen these words that have found their way into our heart by your Spirit, whose ministry we plead once more in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning at verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so, we end where we began. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. It's the same message with which he started the book and now ends it literally and literarily. Uh, speaking, this is known as the technique of inclusio, uh, starting and ending or book ending with the very same point. All is vanity has been the conclusion all along, hasn't it, that we found as we've gone down 
every single street to its end with Solomon. And may I remind you again that the Hebrew word here for vanity is the rich metaphor that uh, is used to express the futility of life that we experience in this fallen world. Literally, it means breath or vapor. It's kind of like the steam that rises off your morning cup of coffee and disappears. Such is life. And you know this, don't you? You know this from experience, and now you know it even better and understand it now from having spent these eight months with the preacher. You cannot grasp life, and before you know it, it's gone. Vanishing as quickly as it appeared. I say down every single street we've traveled with him, haven't we? We found it to be so true. Into the cul-de-sac of restless toil under the sun, we found there's nothing to gain. At the end of the road of human wisdom, we found that it actually increases sorrow and vexation. You know, wise or foolish, we die in the end. We chased pleasure through Solomon. And some of you have done this in your own lives. Down the dead end road to find that wine, women, and song, parks, houses, and vineyards, gold, silver, and treasure, put them all together, and there's nothing to be gained in them. All vanity. Power, we found out, is Vanity and money too, bringing great trouble oftentimes to those who possess it. And even if we could hold on to them forever, there's no satisfaction to be found in them. And then most recently we were reminded, weren't we, of the great vanity, the last great vanity, the vanity of death. Dust we are and to dust we will return. Vanity of vanities. Now, all of that would have left us very gloomy, very gloomy indeed, if it were not for the fact that Ecclesiastes has called us time and time and time again with, refree, re, with repeating refrain to rejoice, to rejoice, to, to rejoice in life's many blessings. And he's pointed them out to us. The preacher has told us to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in our toil and in the love of our friends and of one special friend in particular if we are married. Remember that he said there's a time for healing. There is a time for harvesting. There's a time for laughing. There's a time for dancing. There's a time for loving. There's a time for peace. He's told us, enjoy your wealth. Enjoy wealth. Enjoy possessions. Enjoy power if those are in your lot. And he underscored it all with this, for this is God's gift to you. In sum, there is great joy to be had in this life. And Christians should take hold of that joy with both hands every day. Now I say Christians because... All of that joy and that blessing is only enjoyed, can only be enjoyed truly by the one who remembers his creator. As we heard last week, there is no true joy for a person who, who futilely whistles in the dark, who imagines his universe devoid of God. 
And even for Christians, we know the best this world has to offer is, yes, temporary and fleeting. Has the preacher proven his point? Well, I think he certainly has. Derek Kidner points out in his commentary, nothing in our search has led us home. Nothing that we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Yes, truly, as I said earlier, it is the very same message that met us in the beginning, that now meets us in the end. That has not changed, but what has changed is that we have changed. We've been changed. We're no longer the same people since we started this eight months ago on the first Sunday of this year of our Lord. This time that we've been spending with the preacher has had a transformative effect on our thinking, hasn't it? On our hearts, on us. And there's a reason for that. And here's the reason. This is no mere human book. It is ultimately a divine one. And being a divine book with, uh, within the divinely inspired book that we call the Scripture or the Bible, it bears certain characteristics. In fact, that's how this epilogue begins. The Scripture is self-conscious of its own status as Scripture. And it's not bashful to turn our attention to that fact and to these qualities, including especially its quality of having been divinely inspired. Now, sometimes the Bible just comes out and says it flat out, doesn't it? It's just like Paul does writing to Timothy. You remember, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There it is. And the Scripture sometimes just, as I say, just lays it out. Just jumps right to the point. At other times, a more meandering path finally uh, arrives at this conclusion and that these are the very words of God. And that's what Kohelet, the, the preacher Solomon, does here. He slowly makes his way to the point. Maybe he teases us, maybe tests our patience a little bit, but wonderful things he has to say along the way. He helps us to understand the doctrine of the divine inspiration of Scripture. You see, it was not as if the brains of the scripture writers were kind of cut off, you know, shut off the brain and they switched into auto mode and wrote the words of the Bible robotically as they were inspired by God. No, what we've experienced over the past eight months, indeed what we receive every time we open our Bibles to any passage, is, is, the truly, is truly the word of God. Indeed it is, but it is also the product of much intellectual endeavor and a lot of mental sweat. And you'll notice that in preaching knowledge to the people, verse 9, the preacher sought, sought words to find words full of delight, and uprightly he wrote those words of truth. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes that we've been reading didn't just appear out of thin air. Uh, no more than Paul's magnum opus. The book of Romans, that masterful summary of the entire Christian gospel and message. No, the preacher here is any writer of the Bible, studied and studied hard and thought and weighed and arranged these words with, with great care and attention and precision. 
Verse 9, the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, by the way, as an aside here, in case it's troubling to, to some of you, don't be distressed by the reference to the preacher here in the third person. You know, it's entirely possible that Solomon is referring to himself here as we sometimes do ourselves. Just days ago, I was involved in a group text and we were trying to make a decision and I texted, John agrees. Well, everybody understood you know, who was writing that text. Nobody wondered about the author and it's not a problem here if an if, if, if it is Solomon referring to himself, but it's not a problem either if it's another person writing this here. There's no matter at all. You know, there's no contradiction here to the message, but rather a perfectly consistent application of everything that's come before. So in case that was bothering you, we'll just remove that from the table and come back to the point. This is the inspired Word of God. And that point will be made clearly and directly in just a moment in our text. But first, let's take a note of the fact that the preacher, the author of this book, has been at pains to write with great care. He chose from the many proverbs, from the wise sayings that he had heard over the years and that had come to him, of course, in, to include just the weightiest of them. The ones that would find their way right into our hearts, as indeed they have. Things like anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Or who can make straight what God has made crooked. Or dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. And he arranged the material in the book logically as well, so that, that he's taken us through a reasonable argument not, not, may, okay, not as tightly organized maybe as our Western textbooks or our instruction manuals. But that actually leads me to another point, and that is that he's written beautifully. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. And having the words of Ecclesiastes delighted our hearts in their beauty, in their artistry, the famous American writer Tom Wolfe described Ecclesiastes as, quote, the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth, the greatest single piece of writing I have known, end quote. From this book, we've received such beautiful expressions, haven't we, as the sun also rises, and to everything there is a season and eternity in the hearts of men, and cast your bread upon the waters, and the almond tree blossoms, and, and the one we often quote to one another. And might have quoted just a couple of days ago to Bob Barker, uh, man knows not his time. These phrases didn't just invent themselves, you know. They're the fruit of a fertile mind and poetic a man who loved all creation, including the wonderful creature we call language. Isn't that the way of all of Scripture? You know, it's, it's, it's unlike any other book. Have you noticed this? Compare Scripture to any other book 
And none compare for the artistic beauty of the Scripture. Praise be to God. <laughs> Praise be to God indeed that the Scripture doesn't read like a systematic theology book from your seminary classroom, you know. Poetry, prose, metaphor, story, apocalyptic drama, as well as, yes, proposition. These are the ways that God meets us. Our minds, our hearts are won by God in these ways through faithful men who penned God's holy word as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. And not only with careful precision and beautiful expression, but also with integrity. Verse 10 again, uprightly he wrote the words of truth. Of this you may be certain, absolutely certain, whatever Kohelet has told us has been entirely, utterly true. He has told us the truth about God. He has told us the truth about ourselves. He's told us the truth about this world in which we're living, about our lives under the sun, the ecstasies, and the agonies. Well, no wonder Herman Melville's Ishmael in Moby Dick calls Ecclesiastes, quote, the fine hammered steel of woe. Ecclesiastes has told us the truth and nothing but the truth. Oh, what's been their effect? Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now, you're all somewhat familiar with a goad, aren't you? Even if you are like I, a city boy or a city girl. Uh, I remember late one night in my youth while filling uh, my semi at the truck stop with fuel, catching out of the corner of my eye in the mirror, a strange, strange sight. The truck at the next fueling station was swaying and rocking back and forth and back and forth. And, and upon closer look in the mirror, I saw the driver donning his cowboy hat, hanging off the side of the trailer, ramming a rod into the holes in the side of this trailer while well, I had to get out and figure out what was going on. It was a livestock trailer full of cows, and he was shocking them with an electric cattle prod. What are you doing? I yes, and why? I have to get them moving from time to time, he said, or they'll settle against each other, and some of them will suffocate. I don't know whether it was true or if he was just solving a little boredom with some bovine sadism, but uh, uh, somehow when he explained it, what appeared to be very mean actually turned out to be very kind. We don't like to be prodded, do we? We don't like to be goaded. But sometimes, oftentimes, that's what God's Word does to us, doesn't it? And we can be pretty obstinate sometimes, can't we? And pretty apathetic other times. And so God's word comes to us and it, it pricks us. It pricks our consciences. It, it goads us. It applies enough discomfort to us to turn us away from our sin and back 
fleeing into God's arms and to obedience. In the days of the early church, Gregory uh, Thamadergos said, the mind is roused and spurred by the instructions of wise people just as much as the body is by an ox goad being applied. Well, Ecclesiastes has often been a prod to us, hasn't it? Or maybe better said, a sheep prod to us for a reason that will soon enough be clear to you this morning. But first, another metaphor, verse 11. The words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed. Now what Ecclesiastes has said, indeed what all of Scripture says from Genesis through Revelation, uh, are like nails firmly fixed in place. You know, when we tore the walls out of the basement right below your feet, <laughs> right there, and, and, uh, and started to do deconstruction in order to expand our fellowship hall, I came upon one nail in particular driven so firmly into the concrete that no amount of effort on my part would dislodge it. I mean, I beat on it, I bent it, I pulled on it. It would not budge. Only a grinder level to the floor would finally do away with that nail. Well, that's Ecclesiastes, and that's God's word, firmly fixed all these centuries, these millennia. Men may ignore it, men may suppress it, they may disobey it, they may ridicule it, but they will never, ever destroy it. It is firmly, firmly fixed. And for the Christian who submits herself to God... It is firmly fixed and it is nailed to the heart. It cannot be removed from our conscience. It can't be removed from our consciousness. Two are better than one. A threefold cord cannot be quickly broken. I don't know how many times I have read that phrase, thought of that phrase, heard that phrase, even in pop culture since we started this series in Ecclesiastes. You see, God's word is fixed in his world and it is going nowhere. And no wonder, here we finally get to the point at the end of verse 11. God's word, this book of Ecclesiastes included, is given by one shepherd. Capital S, shepherd. It's given by God. To us. This is true of no other book. Not a single other book. I don't care which book you produce or come up with. And millions of them, by the way, are published every year. And we agree with the, uh, the author that uh, trying to read even a fraction of them, is, it's wearying to the flesh. And, uh, not that reading is bad, of course. Christians will do well to be readers. But beware. Beware of the words of man. If you're standing in, in, in uh, used to be books a million, now they're closed with the Charles, second and Charles over here. You're standing in second Charles and you're, you're flipping through a book and, 
and you find that this author claims to have unraveled the mysteries of life. Just, just close it <laughs> and put it right back where you found it because your hand, you're holding a lie in your hand. Beware the words of man. And so finally the preacher gets to the point. This is the word of God. The scripture, the Bible is the word of God. This is the inspired scripture. The word that came from his mouth. From the mouth of the shepherd. And you all know who the shepherd is. Don't you? The Lord is my shepherd. I am the good shepherd, says who? Says Jesus. When we hear Ecclesiastes, you know the voice we've been listening to all these months, the voice of Kohelet, it's been the voice of Jesus all along. It's been the voice of Jesus. And submitting to what we hear and what we have heard in Ecclesiastes, we submit to our good shepherd, the same shepherd, by the way, let this not escape you, who laid down his life for you, for his sheep. When the preacher calls us away from the vanities of life to find joy in the Lord, it's Jesus calling us to find our joy in himself, who loved us and gave himself for us. So hear him now. Open your ears to hear the voice of Jesus now, are you ready? Here's the end of the matter, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Well, someone will say, no, wait, just a cotton-picking minute. That doesn't sound at all like Jesus to me. That doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. Oh, fear God and keep his commandments? Ah, but that's exactly what Jesus says, isn't it? Remember from our time in Matthew together, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then jump a few doors over with me to John's gospel. If you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's exactly what Jesus says. Your good shepherd and mine. What he commands us to do. Now, <clears throat> I know that uh, what some of you hear when Jesus says, fear God and keep his commandments, because I know that you grew up being told in church week after week after week that you must do better that you must climb higher on God's ladder, that you must impress him with your obedience, that you must somehow gain his approval or some other variation on that theme. And it was oppressive to you. And so now you feel, hearing this, like you're back at square one. Right back where you were. Even after all you've heard in this house over these years about Salvation by grace alone. Well, then let me explain. To fear God 
to fear God, it, it is to look to him like a little child looks to his father with trust, with awe, with love. That's what it is to fear God. It's, it's the confidence of a little boy or girl who knows that he, that she has not been all that father wanted me to be. I've disappointed him. I've disobeyed him. I've been disloyal to him. But wonder of wonders, Father still loves me. What an awesome Father I have. Now all I want to do is to bow before him and obey him all the rest of my days. That's the fear of God. The fact that I must face him at that great day, that God will bring every deed of mine into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, you know, that doesn't frighten me like it does, like it should, a wicked person. Uh, there is going to be much that I'm going to be ashamed of. I'm going to be ashamed to have you here. Some of those things, my brothers and sisters, and it's going to be embarrassing, and I wish with all my might that they were not there to be sure. But for me, for you, for all those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who fear the Lord, who strive to please God, no matter how imperfectly, For us, we who know ourselves to be in the hands of the Lord, that great day will bring vindication, not punishment. He knows my secret sins. It's true. But he also knows the depth of my love for him who loved me so much that he gave himself for me, that he died for me, for even me. That he paid the price for my sins on the cross at Calvary. That there the good shepherd died for this stinky sheep. God will judge righteously in the end. Even so, Lord, we say, even so, Lord, come quickly. For me, for you in Christ there are only better things to come.